everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Savage Files. I'm your host, Jade Savage, and today we have a lot to unpack. Since our previous episode, Brian Kohlberger is officially back in Idaho. He was flown on a small little tiny plane that took like 11 hours to fly him from Pennsylvania back to Idaho. He arrived late at night, so the next day he was taken to the courthouse first thing in the morning. The court hearing was at 9.30 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, and the affidavit was released. I didn't know what to expect from this affidavit because sometimes they don't give us a whole lot. Sometimes they give us a bunch. So I I wasn't sure what we were going to get, but boy, was this affidavit a doozy. So I'm here to break it all down, and let's talk about it, guys. Let's talk about this affidavit. A probable cause affidavit is a summary of the evidence and circumstances of the arrest. It's written by the arresting officer and given to a judge to review. And once the judge feels like there's enough evidence to arrest, he'll sign off on it. So this is important to remember going into this affidavit that this is just a summary of the circumstances and the evidence. This does not mean this is all the prosecution has against Brian Kohlberger. So please keep an open mind going forward with this case and while we listen to this affidavit. I'm not going to read the affidavit word for word, but I will refer to it throughout this episode so you guys can understand the exact verbiage that police are using. And also, I want to take this moment to say that if you're not watching on YouTube, you may want to watch on YouTube because I'm going to add maps and stuff throughout this so you guys can see Brian Koberger's route of travel and things like that. So fair warning at the beginning, if you want to see a visual version, go to YouTube, Savage Files. The affidavit itself is written from the point of view of Officer Brett Payne, who's been on the force for about four years. Officer Payne says that he enters the house through the front door and is immediately taken to the second floor west bedroom, which is identified as Xana's bedroom. Officer Payne says, as I approached the room, I could see a body, later identified as Kernodal's, laying on the floor. Kernodal was deceased with wounds which appeared to have been caused by an edge weapon. Also in the room was a male, later identified as Ethan Chapin. Chapin was also deceased, with wounds later determined to be caused by sharp force injuries. What I find really interesting with this is Officer Payne is saying that upon arriving to the crime scene, he could tell that Xana was deceased from wounds caused by a sharp-edged weapon. When he talks about Ethan, he says there was also a male in the room with Xana and his injuries were later determined by a medical examiner to have been caused by sharp force injuries. It makes me wonder what condition Ethan's body was found in when they found him and also if his injuries were less or more significant than Xana's. I do also want to note that there is a page in this affidavit that is redacted and it comes around the area where they're talking about Ethan. Officer Payne then recounts walking up to the third floor. He says Kaylee's room is located on the west end of the third floor and inside of her room was Murphy, Kaylee's dog. My first thought when I hear this is there's body cam footage. They caught the inside of the house, the crime scene on camera, everybody's reactions, everything happening, and it's all recorded. This also piques my interest because I wonder did Kaylee leave Murphy in there or did the suspect put Murphy in the room by himself while he committed these crimes. I'll dive deeper into that thought as we get further down in the affidavit. As the officer walks towards Maddie's room, he says, As I entered this bedroom, I could see two females in the single bed in the room. Both Kaylee and Maddie were deceased with visible stab wounds. So the officer says that Xana was found with wounds which appeared to have been caused with an edged weapon. Ethan's wounds weren't identified until the medical examiner later identified them as caused by sharp forced injuries. 
and he says Kaylee and Maddie were deceased with visible stab wounds. Once again, this piques my curiosity about the condition of the bodies. He's saying Maddie and Kaylee were clearly stabbed. He's saying Xana was deceased from injuries caused by an edged weapon. And Ethan, he couldn't even say once he arrived, they had to wait for the medical examiner to give her assessment. It's just the little things that I take note of, and I'm going to keep it in the back of my mind in this case going forward. Officer Payne continues by saying, I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side. The knife sheath is very interesting because if anybody listened to my last episode where I talk about Papa Rogers, Papa Rogers is this person who was commenting under the Idaho Murders Facebook group a bunch of weird things and he talks about a knife sheath. In the comment section, this other commenter is arguing with this Papa Rogers and is like, that doesn't make sense. And Papa Rogers keeps saying, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And he was the first person to bring up a knife sheath. And I have said that Papa Rogers is super suspicious on a good day um and so the fact that it comes out that there was a knife sheath found just makes papa rogers look that much creepier aka i believe it's brian kohlberger the officer continues on to say that bethany says that she saw ethan and xana at the sigma chi house from 10 a.m to 1 45 a.m he also notes in this affidavit that ethan does not live at the residence i know there was a lot of questions of did ethan live there or not but this is clarifying ethan was just a guest of xana's he then says that Kaylee and Maddie were at the corner club from 10 p.m. to 1.30 a.m. And then they went to the food truck, they got food, and were picked up from a private driving service at 1.56 a.m. The officer says that Dylan and Bethany both made statements during their interviews that indicated the occupants of the King Road residence were home by 2 p.m. and asleep or at least in their rooms by 4 a.m. This is with the exception of Xana, who received a DoorDash order at the residence at approximately 4 a.m. Starting here, I am going to read straight from the affidavit because this is where it gets crazy and I want to use officers' words as they describe how the incident happened in this moment. Dylan stated she originally went to sleep in her bedroom on the southeast side of the second floor. Dylan stated she was awoken at approximately 4 a.m. by what she said sounded like Kaylee playing with her dog in one of the upstairs bedrooms, which were located on the third floor. A short time later, Dylan said she heard who she thought was Kaylee say something to the effect of, there's someone here. A review of records obtained from a forensic download of Xana's phone showed this could also have been Xana as her cellular phone indicated she was likely awake and using the TikTok app at approximately 4.12 a.m. Dylan stated she looked out of her bedroom but did not see anything when she heard the comment about someone being in the house. Dylan stated she opened her door a second time when she heard what she thought was crying coming from Xana's room. Dylan then said she heard a male voice say something to the effect of, It's okay, I'm here to help you. At approximately 4.17 a.m., a security camera located at 1112 King Road, a residence immediately to the northwest of 1122 King Road, picked up a distorted audio of what sounded like voices or a whimper followed by a loud thud. A dog can also be heard barking numerous times starting at 4.17 a.m. The camera is less than 50 feet from where the west wall of Xana's bedroom is. Dylan stated she opened her door for a third time after she heard the crying and saw a figure clad in black clothing and a mask that covered the person's mouth and nose walking towards her. Dylan describes the figure as 5'10 or taller, male, 
not very muscular, but athletically built with bushy eyebrows. The male walked past Dylan as she stood in a frozen, shocked phase. The male walked towards the back sliding glass door, and Dylan locked herself in her room after seeing the male. Dylan did not state she recognized the male. This leads investigators to believe that the murderer left the scene. This is a lot to take in. It's um, hard to understand. It's very hard to digest. Since this case hit the media, we were told that the murders occurred between 3 and 4 a.m. and that the roommates were believed to be asleep during the time and didn't hear anything. Now we're reading in this affidavit that Xana was alive at 4 a.m. on TikTok at 4.12 a.m. Dylan was awake during the murders. She was on the second floor. There's cameras in the neighboring area that caught audio. This is a lot. And the fact that Dylan came face to face with the suspect is crazy. All of it is so crazy. The fact that from an audio outside of the residence, it picked up whimpering or talking. It picked up a thud and it picked up the dog barking after there's been so many people coming out saying the dog didn't bark. It's a lot of things to wrap your head around because the reality of the situation is the complete opposite of the speculation that's been swirling this entire time. Okay, back to the affidavit. The affidavit says that the combination of Dylan's statements to law enforcement, reviews of forensic downloads of records from Bethany and Dylan's phones, and a video of the suspect, as described below, leads investigators to believe that the homicides occurred between 4 and 4.25 a.m. The officer then goes on to say that a latent shoe print was found just outside of Dylan's door when the crime scene was processed for a second time. He then said that this is consistent with Dylan's statement regarding the suspect's path of travel out of the residence. The affidavit then goes into the video canvassing portion where they're checking CCTV video for the white Elantra and when it's coming in and out of the neighborhood. It says, A review of footage from multiple videos obtained from the King Road neighborhood showed multiple sightings of the suspect's vehicle starting at 3.29 a.m. and ending at 4.20 a.m. So that's a little over an hour from the time the vehicle first enters the neighborhood to the time that the vehicle is last seen leaving the neighborhood. Now remember, at 4.17 a.m., three minutes before the vehicle is seen leaving the neighborhood, the neighbor's residence picked up noises coming from 1122 King Road, such as whimpering, a loud thud, and dog barking. The affidavit says that between 3.29 and 4.20 a.m., the sightings show the suspect's vehicle makes an initial three passes by 1122 King Road residence and then leaves via Walenta Drive. Now, in the YouTube version of this podcast episode, this is where I'm going to start inserting maps to show you guys the suspect's alleged route of travel to and from the King Road residence and all of the stops that police are talking about in the affidavit. And I will say, once I started mapping all of this out, it's just very interesting to look at and nice to have a visual representation of all these random addresses in this affidavit. And it really makes everything come together and starts to make a lot of sense. The suspect's vehicle can be seen entering the neighborhood a fourth time at approximately 4.04 a.m. 
It's important right here to note that remember, Xana got DoorDash delivered around 4 a.m. So quite literally, the DoorDash driver barely missed the suspect arriving. The suspect's vehicle is next seen departing the area of King Road residence at approximately 4.20 a.m. at a high rate of speed. The suspect's vehicle is next observed traveling southbound on Walenta Drive. I believe the suspect's vehicle likely exited the neighborhood at Palouse River Drive, Conestoga Drive. Palouse River Drive is at the southern edge of Moscow and proceeds into the Whitman County, Washington. Eventually, the road leads to Pullman, Washington. For my non-YouTube listeners, police are describing the suspect leaving the residence and going out of the neighborhood south and then heading west to Pullman, Washington. But the way that he goes is a rural area. It looks like it might be mountains or maybe just greenery. He definitely purposefully avoided cameras and went a back way to Pullman, Washington instead of through the little town up and around on the main highway, which I believe is Highway 270. At 5.25 a.m., an hour after the murders were committed, the suspect's vehicle was seen on five different cameras in Pullman, Washington and on the WSU campus cameras. The vehicle was seen traveling northbound away from Moscow, Idaho, back into Pullman, and it was spotted on camera at 1300 Johnson Road. Two minutes later, the vehicle was spotted going north on Stadium Way, and it was caught on cameras at various streets. The various streets are Nevada Street, Grimes Way, Wilson Road, and Cougar Way. And I did map out each road on the map that I'm inserting on the YouTube version. These addresses are significant because we're seeing that the same vehicle that left before the murders is now heading home an hour after the murders and he spotted on each camera headed in the direction of his residence. On November 25th, 2022, MPD asked area law enforcement agencies to be on the lookout for a white Elantra in the area. On November 29th, 2022, four days later, an officer noticed that there was a white Elantra registered at WSU. When the officer looked into the vehicle, he noted that it was registered to Brian Koberger in Pennsylvania with the Pennsylvania license plate, but that the apartment was registered in Pullman, Washington, three-fourths of a mile from where the vehicle was seen on Stadium Way and Cougar Way. The same day at approximately 12.58 a.m., a separate officer was in the area looking for Hyundai Elantras and located a 2015 white Elantra at the suspect's residence. Now, this part is worded a little bit funky, but they're saying one officer was looking up records for white Elantras that were registered at WSU. Simultaneously, there was a separate officer on foot looking up white Elantras, and he came across Brian Koberger's white Elantra in person that now has a Washington tag. I just kind of wanted to break that down because I felt like it was a little bit confusing to kind of read. And if someone's listening and they're a little confused, I thought I might just clarify. Officer Payne then says, I reviewed Koberger's Washington State driver's license information and photograph. The license indicates that Koberger is a white male with the height of 6 foot and weight of 185 pounds. Additionally, the photograph of Koberger shows that he has bushy eyebrows. Koberger's physical description is consistent with the description of the male that Dylan saw inside the King Road residence on November 13th. Officers then reviewed footage from a few traffic stops where they pulled Brian Koberger over for traffic infractions. These occurred on August 21st and October 14th, 2022. 
Officers noted that his registration was due to expire on November 30th, but on both traffic stops, Koberger's vehicle was registered in Pennsylvania. It was then noted that on November 18th, 2022, according to Washington State Licensing, Koberger registered the 2015 white Elantra with Washington and later received Washington plates. This is important to note because the white Elantra the police saw on surveillance video on November 13th did not have a front license plate, and if his vehicle was registered in Pennsylvania, he did not need to have a front license plate, so they're making the connection there. The affidavit continues on to say that as a part of the investigation, law enforcement obtained search warrants to determine cellular devices that utilize cellular towers in close proximity to the King Road residence on November 13th, 2022, between 3 and 5 a.m. After they obtained the search warrant, they learned that Koberger's phone did not ping on any of the towers in close proximity to King Road residents from 3 to 5 a.m. The affidavit then says at approximately 2.47 a.m., which is an hour and 13 minutes before the murders, that Kohlberger's phone utilized cellular resources that provided coverage southeast of the Kohlberger residence consistent with his phone leaving the residence and traveling south through Pullman, Washington. At 2.47 a.m., an hour and 13 minutes before the murder, the phone goes off the grid, which indicates either he turned it off or put it in airplane mode. The phone does not turn back on until 4.48 a.m., which is approximately 20 minutes after the murder occurred. When the phone turns back on at 4.48 a.m., it's using cell phone towers south of Moscow near Blaine, Idaho. I show you guys on the map, but the cell phone towers are showing he went south on Highway 95, and then he does this horseshoe to Highway 195 back into Pullman. And I really don't get this. When I think in my mind, was he going for a joyride to let it sink in? Was he running off of adrenaline? Because when I think about it, you're driving through the middle of nowhere covered in blood, which is confusing to me at best. I don't know if the inside of his car has leather seats or cloth seats, but my thought is, will they find DNA in the vehicle if he went for this hour-long joyride covered, soaked in blood after this horrendous murder? Because if you were going to get pulled over, because clearly he's not the greatest driver of all time, if you were going to get pulled over, that's pretty risky, buddy. You're dressed in all black, you have a bloody knife with you, and you're covered in blood? Make it make sense. Somebody. On November 13th, around 9 a.m., police say that Kohlberger's cell phone uses towers consistent with him leaving his residence. Kohlberger's cell phone utilized towers near the King Road residence between the hours of 9.12 and 9.21 a.m. His phone then uses towers consistent with him traveling back to his residence, and he arrives back at his residence at approximately 9.32 a.m. See, this is where things stop making sense to me because in 32 minutes, Kohlberger drove from his residence to the area of King Road residence and then back to his residence. I have a thought that I need to get out on this because in 32 minutes, Kohlberger drove from his residence to King Road residence and back to his residence. It shows on Google Maps, which I'm going to put in the YouTube version so you guys know I'm not lying. It says on Google Maps that it's 20 minutes one way. I hear so many people say maybe he went back for the sheath. Maybe he went back inside the house. In 32 minutes, he would one have to be speeding at a pretty decent rate of speed. And two, that would give him zero minutes inside of that residence. 
I personally am not convinced he drove to the actual residence, maybe went into the neighborhood to see if police were called yet. But there would be no way that he would make it from his residence to King Road residence, get inside there, ruffle around, look for something, leave, and then go back to his house. They're just, I mean, it's not physically possible. In my personal opinion, I don't even think he stopped the car. I think he pulled into the neighborhood, checked out the area, and went straight back to his house. I don't even truly think he stopped the car. I don't think he got out, and I definitely don't think he went inside that residence. Then the affidavit goes on to say that Kohlberger's phone has not pinged in Moscow, Idaho since the date of the murders, which is really interesting because there's that news clip where there's a white Elantra up top driving around and people are like, it's the suspect, it's him, he came back. But police in the affidavit say that according to his phone records, he has not been back to Moscow. Now, could he have left his phone at home or turned it off? Yes, of course. But at the same time, why would he think to turn his phone off if he was going to go to Moscow on a normal day that the murders didn't occur. I don't know, just just a thought. Officer Payne then goes on to say that he requested a search warrant for historical records on Koberger's phone to see if Koberger had been stalking the victims in any way. Through the records, they learned that Kohlberger had been in the area of the King Road residence 12 times prior to November 13th, 2022. One of the times that Kohlberger was stalking the residence, he left the residence at 11.35 p.m. and got pulled over by Latah County Sheriff at 11.37 two minutes later. I always think how haunting that must be for that officer looking back to know that Kohlberger left the 11.22 King Road residence from stalking them and planning their murder and then he pulls Kohlberger over for speeding. Also, it should show you how far back he was planning this murder. August to September, September to October, October to November, and we don't know how long prior to August 21st that he was stalking them as well. That will show great premeditation in court, but to me that also shows that he knew that more than just Kaylee, Maddie, and Xana lived there. He knew Xana had a boyfriend. He knew that Dylan and Bethany lived there. Somebody who's willing to stalk a residence and stalk these girls to the extent that he did, he knew exactly who was there. So many people always say maybe he didn't know there were other people living there. It would be hard when there's photos on social media that say, meet all the roommates, and there's five girls in the picture. It would be hard to argue that he didn't know that there were other people there, which goes to show he had a target. On December 27th, 2022, Pennsylvania agents recovered trash from the Kohlberger family residence located in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. That evidence was sent to the Idaho State Lab for testing. On December 28th, 2022, the Idaho State Lab reported that a DNA profile obtained from the trash and the DNA profile obtained from the sheath identified a male as not being excluded as the biological father of the suspect. This affidavit really gave me more questions than answers, but we have to remember that this isn't even a crumb, like not even a four at the 16th of the investigation. By no means would police put their smoking gun in this affidavit. They have a lot of other evidence on Koberger, and not to mention they've had over 10,000 tips. And that was before they even announced Koberger's name, so I'm sure they have so much to get through. More and more is going to come out about this guy. 
We have on January 12th a status hearing for Hoberger. Uh, a lot of people want to know what this means. This is just a status hearing to kind of check in with the court. Um, we don't have a date of if he's going to plead guilty or innocent. Will there be a plea deal? Will this go to trial? We won't know that for probably another few months. His defense team is going to want to look through all the discovery and see what type of case they would have at trial. And prosecution may not even offer him a plea deal. This might just go to trial. This is a death penalty state so the death penalty may be an option they're gonna weigh in on what the family thinks with that they may or they may not it's hard to say i know that kaylee's dad did come out and say that they would be for the death penalty it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the families land when it comes to the death penalty will this go to trial will he plea out i don't know i can't imagine prosecution wanting to give this guy a plea but crazier things have happened my biggest takeaways from this affidavit was Dylan coming face to face with the killer. The fact that this crime was committed in about 10 minutes-ish, maybe 12, start to finish. The audio from the neighbor. The fact that Murphy did indeed bark. The weird joyride that Koberger took after he committed these murders when he was covered in blood. That's weird, crazy behavior. But also so is murdering four people, so there's that. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today, my friends, and letting me break down this affidavit and give my thoughts. I have a lot more thoughts, but sometimes the internet is not the best place for all of those. So I kind of keep them to myself, but I can tell you that I am confusion. As the news in this case comes out, you know that I will keep you guys updated on this case. Also, I have a couple of other ones I want to try and cover. There's this missing lady in Massachusetts that I want to start to try to cover. Um, I'm also working on some stuff for the Courtney Taylor, Courtney Clenny case, and a couple of other ones that are happening. So hopefully we're not just going to be stuck on Idaho for a lifetime. <laughs> um, as much as I want to keep this story alive, there's so many other stories that deserve to be highlighted too. So my new goal is to try... So my new goal for 2023 is to try and talk about other cases that are going on and cover some of the other cases that you guys want to hear about. The Courtney Taylor one to me is really interesting. So I want to talk about it. You guys seem really excited every time I bring it up. So we're definitely going to do a podcast episode on that as well. So stay tuned for more content. I'm going to try and pump some more out for you guys. It's just been kind of, it's just very time consuming, but I'm trying my best. So I'm going to try and have some more content for you guys. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you guys have a beautiful week and I'll see you guys next week for another episode of Savage Files. Thanks, friends. Mm -hmm.